0: This morning's scripture readings are from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 1, verses 16 to 20, and also chapter 8, verses 11 to 13. We will begin with Mark 1, 16 to 20. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Now Mark 8 11 to 13, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him, and he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. This is God's word.
1: Last week, we learned about a new kind of kingdom. One whose focus is upon the king himself. Uh, This king, he's a different kind of king. He's He's a humble sort who never announces himself as king, but through the authority of his teachings, his actions towards others, and taking back territory from a hostile kingdom, it becomes clear that this man, this king, is the central focus not only of our story Mark, but in all of history. We also learned last week how to gain entrance into his kingdom to turn from ruling and running our own lives and our own way and trusting instead in the gospel. The good news that the humble king will let us back into his kingdom if we would but trust him. Trust our lives to him and trust his ways instead of ours. And he doesn't announce his good news about the kingdom via intergalactic press conference, right? Or having all the stars aligned to unveil his silhouette. Neither either, to show his face through our breakfast of choice. All that has been claimed as well, whether it be toast, right, cornflakes, or, of course, my favorite, the breakfast burrito. Um, 1977, Mayor Marie Rubio with burrito. <laughs> True story. In the newspaper, I don't know if you can see that. Jesus shows up in it, of course. So, Jesus chooses not to announce his kingdom in these ways. Though they be clever, maybe nicely packaged, get people's attention. Instead, he gathers a handful of ordinary, humble people together to spread the good news first to them and then through them. In fact, this is how we ought to begin understanding and applying this passage of Scripture that Andy read for us this morning. That is Jesus' call to follow me, And then his one-line description of a life following Jesus, which is, I will make you become fishers of men. So we begin with, follow me. Which is an irresistibly vague invitation. And I want to first talk about the irresistible part of it. Much has been made about Jesus calling his first disciples. It's it's kind of a strange moment, a peculiar moment. Because it's so sacrificial, this this following Jesus. They leave behind their careers. It's so final, they leave behind family. We see that as well. But it's especially so immediate. We see that twice here in this brief little passage. Immediately. Immediately. They leave and follow. It's because of this immediacy that many Christians and smart people, scholars, have tried to piece together a timeline that would make it possible for these disciples to get to know Jesus between the time he announces his kingdom and this moment where he calls them and they leave everything to follow him. Because it doesn't make much sense to us. Surely Jesus would have gotten together with them for coffee. Right? Or they would have had a question and answer session with Jesus where they could sit down and be honest with Jesus about their hardest questions. He would have responded. He'd say, well, let me answer you this. Let me answer you that. Or at least they would have sort of rented a timeshare together, right? Gone away for a while. A little retreat. Just do like the trust fall and the trust walk and bond together and these sorts of things. This must have happened during this time. But there's no evidence of this. Rather, Mark's emphasis is on the immediate response to the call to follow Jesus. Did Jesus pull them in, you know, via tractor beam or hypnosis? Or in Jesus' case, you know, like God beam, God gnosis, you know, and just get them, oh, yes, I will follow you, Jesus. Was that their response? I think Jesus so much didn't so much override their will as there was something about him that drew them irresistibly to himself. What was it? What was the cause behind this magnetism? We turn in our Bibles or look on our screen to the opening of a different gospel, the gospel of John. I think we can locate our answer. In the Gospel of John, when he talks about the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he says this in verses 14 through 17. Let's read this together. The Word, the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him. And he cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Early in his career, Salman Rushdie wrote a book called Shame in which he argued that the true battle of history hasn't been fought between the rich and the poor, the socialist and capitalist, or fought along ethnic or racial lines, but between what he calls the Epicurean and the Puritan. Translate this for you. Society vacillates back and forth between those who say anything goes and those who protest, oh no, you don't. Society goes back and forth between this. And we see this in society, on a societal level. The restoration versus Cromwell. ACLU versus the religious right. Modern secularism versus Islamic fundamentalism. And the list goes on. Anything goes versus, oh no you don't. We know this on a micro level as well. Weigh the truth of this assertion in your own life. Consider people who annoy you or flat out just frustrate you moment. Usually they're either people who don't share your standard, nor in some cases any standard. They don't abide by any law or any compass, moral compass, code of decency is out the window for them. Or people who annoy you, frustrate you, are people who hold you to, expect you, look down on you for not attaining to their standard. We know this inwardly as well. There are times we expect far more out of ourselves. We hold ourselves to a needed standard. And there are other times we're crushed, just crushed by an unrealistically high standard. And so we go back and forth, living our lives between these two things, right? Anything goes, freeing myself, letting myself go, Disciplining myself, higher standard, expecting more out of myself. Jesus' call attracts because he brings in his person the fullness of both grace and truth. Grace and truth. You see, Moses, as we are told here in John 1, gives the law. But he cannot live up to the standard of that law. Moses is just a man. He loses his temper. He fails to follow God in the way God would want. And so Moses' call isn't irresistible. The call to follow Moses isn't overwhelmingly attractive. He's just a man who fails in the law that he gives. Now this man, Solomon Rushdie, who I mentioned before, he lands on the side of grace, criticizing Islamic fundamentalists. But he he can't be fully respected because he can't actually bring any order to life through the secularist, anything-goes philosophy. right? So we like to say, well, just let people be. Let let us be who we are. Let us do what we want to do. But then life gets worse. We see over time that nothing changes when you live life that way. In fact, society deteriorates. And so we swing back again to we must have more law, we must have more order. Rusty said no, and as a result, uh, the government of Iran put a $1 million bounty on his head. because He called them out for being too fundamental, too high a standard. People didn't listen to him as well. This is why Randy Alcorn calls it the grace and truth paradox. Because no one other than Jesus can perfectly offer both, grace and truth. Jesus gives grace to those who know that they are broken, who know that they are weak, and know that they are helpless. He repairs and he restores those kind of people. Likely such were Simon and Andrew. Simon and Andrew were fishermen who cast their nets from the shore. These are the type of fishermen that every day walked out to the same spot with likely the same net that they've owned for years or for their whole lives. And threw it out. They didn't have a boat. They were boatless. And as such, Simon and Andrew were largely confined to one area of fishing, daily dependent on whatever they caught, and daily dependent for fish to actually show up in that spot. They understood waking up every day thinking, Man, another day where I'm totally dependent to find these fish or else we don't eat. We, know we can't travel far. We can't hitch a ride on another boat. As fully God, only Jesus' love can do something more than a Hallmark card and a bouquet of flowers. Right? Someone could have come to Andrew and Simon and said, look man, uh, well, hang in there. And just give it, it's all you can do, right? Give it all you got. You're a great fisherman. That doesn't actually give them fish. It doesn't actually repair their lives. Jesus' love can actually do something in their life. That's what grace is. It breaks into your life. Not only to show you that God loves you unconditionally, but He does something about it. He repairs and restores your life. Jesus also speaks truth to those confident of their own righteousness, their own abilities, their own self-sufficiency. Likely such were James and John because they had a boat, frankly. They had a boat. Fish and not meat was the food to eat in near and far off places. And they needed a boat to export that fish and to catch different kinds of fish all over that sea. As one commentator I read pointed out, uh, the owners of boats on the Sea of Galilee were hardly indigenous day laborers, but they were shrewd businessmen with command of the different nuances of the Greek language. In other words, they were educated. They were trained. They were a lot like Wall Street. Plus, in the case of James and John, they were pretty righteous, right? They took care of their dad. As a God who has already humbled himself, we've seen, by intentionally going to to suffering in the desert and getting baptized, though he has nothing to repent of, nothing to be forgiven of, he still gets baptized. Not to mention, humbly stuffing divinity into a frail body. These are things we've already seen just in Mark 1. Jesus alone can penetrate with hard truth. He alone can come humbly and say, you are not the center of your universe. You are not the center of your universe. So stop living like it. Why? Because Jesus is the center of the universe, and not even he lives like it. So he alone has the right to say, why are you acting like the center of the universe? But you know what? To those also does Jesus restore and repair. Unless you think I'm sort of pulling this idea of grace and truth out of thin air, look how Jesus demonstrates this. Next up for Jesus, and we'll see this next week, next Sunday, he speaks authoritative truth combined with gracious healing and restoration. That's the next thing we see. He actually gives us a picture of that. Verses 21 through 34. Kind of preview for next week. Which kind of person are you, though? Like some, Jesus calls, you recognize you are broken, you're helpless, you're addicted, you're without hope. And Jesus calls you by the authority of his grace to follow him. Like some, Jesus calls, you've earned your own way. You've worked hard for what you've done and where you are in your life. You don't need anyone's help. And Jesus says, you are wrong. You are wrong. You've been blinded by the God of this world. You've been blinded by your own pride. The humble king calls you by the penetrating authority of his truth to follow him. Or maybe like me, you go back and forth between both. At times, I, know, I feel disappointed, weak, crushed by expectations I'm not living up to, and I know it. And other times, I feel self-satisfied and with subtle self-credit. And the person of Jesus calls with a, a kind of steely tenderness, a sort of a bullet with butterfly wings. Yet for some of us, this invitation to follow Jesus, this invitation to follow me, is still too vague. Still too vague. We need more information. We need more fine print. We need more proof. Just one more sign. One more sign, God, just show me you're real. I'll follow you. That's why we read from Mark 8 this morning. We read from Mark 8 because after a moment when Jesus shows both his compassion and power and has been trying to show this, to religious, self-sufficient, do-gooding type of people, Mark 8, 11 through 13. First, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. He sighed deeply in his spirit, and he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation attempting to get more information through debate. Just one more sign, Jesus sighs deeply in His Spirit. Some of you came this morning seeking God. And even after I explained and tried to to show to you Jesus' irresistible fullness of His grace and His truth contained in this God-man, you still want more. There will always be more. And Jesus sighs. He longs for you to dig out ears to hear. Jesus offers neither more signs nor additional fine print of exactly what it will cost to follow him, what's this going to cost me, nor does he give you the full game plan of what your life will look like to follow him. He calls you to step out in faith and see for yourself. Now, one such person who stepped out in faith, with imperfect faith, to follow Jesus into the unknown, was a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, I've been reading a uh, biograph- biography of Bonhoeffer's recently, uh, slogging through it. It's you see, it's a light read, but it's interesting. It's good. Bonhoeffer's most famous for being a martyr. Bonhoeffer would never have imagined in his wildest dreams. Or nightmares to call the call to follow Jesus for him would one day lead to his death by the gallows at the hand of the German Gestapo, caused by the hard decision he had to make to involve himself in the plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. He could never have thought, This is going to be my life. Bonhoeffer came from a noble and educated, though humble and hardworking family. He studied first to be a lawyer then a musician, and then finally, against the preferences of many of his own family, a theologian. In other words, his life trajectory seemed to be going in the area of academia. That would be his world. But using the same words expressed in this Eric Metaxas book title, Bonhoeffer became instead a pastor martyr, prophet, and spy. He would never, in his wildest dreams, have guessed this, but such is the adventure of following Jesus. He doesn't give you all the fine print. He calls you to follow him, step out. Now for many, it's hard to know exactly when you responded to the call to follow Jesus. Such was the case for Bonhoeffer, it seems as well. He was a young kid, when he seemed to start to follow Jesus. On the other hand, his true discipleship relationship seemed to begin once he began himself making other disciples. It's interesting. Bonhoeffer would never stop making disciples. Uh, even as he was standing up to 20th century's greatest evil in the Nazi regime, he was living in and leading an underground church community, community church. Meditating on God's word with other people praying with one another, holding one another accountable, because they couldn't have a church above ground that was doing that. So he's making disciples all of his life. But a passion to follow Jesus was first sparked as Bonhoeffer began pastoring, not from the pulpit, but pastoring in the children's service. He started with one small child, one little disciple, then he made two or three, then got to 15, and then 30 or more. And Bonhoeffer loved discipling children, just praying with them, sharing God's truth with them. That's where he started. Following Jesus as his disciple means almost immediately making other disciples of Jesus. Which leads to the second point of Jesus' call this morning, which is, and I will make you become fishers of men. And from this brief, life-purposing, transformational statement, we'll learn three things. Okay, first, A, we learn to fish on the first day. Fish on the first day. That's right, you don't get a break. You don't get a vacation period, a holiday to sort of process through all this. And Jesus, I'm, I live in the postmodern world. I need to figure this out in my life, and I need some time away. I need to travel the world to figure out what I'm going to do with this Jesus thing and how I'm going to grow. No, he gives you a fishing pole pretty much the next day. He says, go. It's time. What? You know what I'm doing? I just became a Christian. But you see even here, the fact that double call here in verses 18 through 20, verse 18 and 20, the double call of left and followed are meant to correspond with the double call of repent and believe. In verse 15. So, I turn, I trust in Jesus, great, leave and follow. Become fishers of men. The term disciple, methetes, literally means learner. Learner. From the day of the calling for, Jesus' disciples learn how to make other disciples of Jesus. Now for some of you, that begins simply by sharing your initial excitement and passion about Jesus' call on your life, and the story of how and under what circumstances, and out of what he called you personally. And that's a great start. That's where most of us start. And he speaks through you by the Holy Spirit, graciously, because he knows that you're young. But begin, it must. Fishing, you must. In fact, I'll put this in a nutshell this morning. Followers also fish. There's no sort of like, well, that's not my spiritual gift. I don't really want to fish for people. I don't want to, I don't want to. I don't want to bother people, get up on their business. I don't want to offend people. I want to keep friendships. But followers also fish. That's the problem. The same lure which caught you, the fullness of grace and truth expressed in Jesus Christ, you put on your hook and you go fishing with. You learn how to catch others for the kingdom with this mixture of grace and truth. And you speak that and you live that in people's lives. So first we learn that you fish on the first day. Secondly, B, Jesus makes the fishers of men. And this is good news. Right? Because how many of us feel the immediate and life-suffocating pressure anytime we're reminded that we're called to go and make disciples? Right? Anytime you get around that verse, it's like, go and make disciples. It's the Great Commission. Uh, (laughs) I don't know how, Jesus. Right? We're like young. Christians in puberty, right? We just don't know how, we're afraid to do it. (laughs) Oh my gosh, Jesus, please help me do this. It's good to remember at these times that Jesus is making us. Our responsibility then is to stay connected to Jesus, especially through his words to us and our words to him. In John 15, 5, and back here behind me, even on our this little banner, we're told, by Jesus, I am the vine you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus promises us fruit and fish so long as we follow, so long as we stay connected. That's the good news. But third thing, see here, we're always becoming fishers of men. But he says here, right, I will make you become. So there's a sense in which we're always becoming. This process of becoming is slow and actually pretty painful for the disciples. In chapter 8 of Gospel Mark, they have a hard time understanding Jesus' warnings about the future. They struggle to understand their own future. Chapter 13, verse 3. They struggle to stay awake and pray to Jesus. Chapter 14, verse 37. They struggle to stick with Jesus' plan when things get hairy. Chapter 14, verse 50, they question the legitimacy of someone they don't know. We don't know this guy. He's doing ministry in Jesus' name. Like, should we trust him? Should we not? Should we, like, put him on our mailing list? Should we pray for this guy? What's going on with him? They don't understand, so they go to Jesus. What, how do we deal with this? Chapter 9. But after the resurrection and getting God the Holy Spirit in them, they also learn how to give the gospel to people who are only looking for money. They learn how to speak the peace that Jesus offers into rabble-rousers who only argue with one another and use it as an opportunity to speak the peace of Jesus into their life. They learn how to wisely draw the powerful and influential into the story of the King of Kings. They become more and more fishers of men. Katie and I spent time on Friday night with a couple couples, which included a longtime fisherman here in Grand Cayman, so I picked his brain a little bit. He explained how different fish have different tendencies. They try to evade you in different ways, right? You develop different techniques, different lures, different timing. Some sort of come up to you, and you've got to wait for them to come to you. Others, you've got to strike quickly, act fast. They're not going to stick around for long. Some think you're a predator. They're threatened by you. It's no different as fishers of men. As Jesus grows you, you catch people and you help them grow. He reveals to you various idols for which only Jesus provides a solution. But you learn how to speak to them in different ways about Jesus. Confront them in different ways. So many folks are hurt either by the church or their families or whatever, and they need time, patience, and persistent pursuit. And that's how you approach them. Some grew up with Ned Flanders as their neighbor, right? They need to hear that you're a real person with real struggles depending on a real Jesus, right? Not just sort of this religious nerd. Some folks love money, power, and the next thing they need to be asked, how's that working out for you? Right? Kind of a bold question. Some folks you'll need to relate to, while others you'll need to be blunt and truthful with. Some You can't reach, but you know someone who can. You know someone whose story connects with theirs. That's how we have a community called a church. So you'll learn to become a fisher. Jesus will do it in you, don't worry. But even still, I have two uncomfortable questions for those who are following Jesus, which most of you prefer I not ask. All right? So I won't. (laughs) Just kidding, I'm going to. All right, I'm compelled to. and those questions are this: Have you made any disciples since following Jesus? Have you made any disciples since following Jesus? Second question. And that's probably enough. Second question. Are you now making any disciples? Jesus takes full responsibility for making you into fishermen, but you are responsible for casting the line, baiting the hook, patiently pursuing, then waiting, and prayerfully discerning when to reel in. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. Not bring people to church, and I'm going to use the guy preaching to make those disciples. No, 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 no. You have to be involved. Go and make disciples of all nations. How do I know if I am in a discipleship relationship then? A couple questions here to take home with you. How do I know if I'm in a discipleship relationship? Here's the criteria I'm going to give you this morning. Any relationship in which your words are decreasing and God's word is increasing, and talking to one another is decreasing while talking to God is increasing. Let me repeat that one more time. Any relationship in which your words are decreasing, God's words increasing, and talking to one another is decreasing while talking to God is increasing. That criteria is sufficiently broad, but I'm sticking to it because it covers the teaching everything I've commanded to you piece of the Great Commission. Jesus goes on to say, teach them everything I've commanded to you. Speak my words. But it's also Jesus' two reminders around the Great Commission that all authority has been given to me. Surely I am with you always, which is just a plea for prayer. It's say, I'm here to help. Ask me. I've got all authority. I'm with you through the Holy Spirit till the end of the age. So this can be accomplished intentionally, it can be accomplished formally and informally. Sitting down or serving together, near and far. It also allows for the get-to-know-you time, only that the get-to-know-Jesus and the get-to-know-Jesus-in-you time is increasing. That makes sense? Not like you're not getting to know each other, what you like, the books you like to read, shows you like to watch, your favorite color. All those things are good. It's just that increasing is getting to know that Jesus in them and Jesus himself. Notice also, it doesn't take notice... This criteria of who's the discipler and who's the disciple-y, I can say from experience, both parties learn and are thus disciples and grow each time. So who cares who's who? But are you in that kind of relationship? My concern is that you are not deceived. Hanging out as Christians or doing things in Christian groups does not a discipleship relationship make. A worship team, our worship team might practice together. That doesn't necessarily mean they're discipling one another, Our elders are on the same team. It doesn't necessarily mean our relationships are characterized by increasingly talking about God's word and directing more conversation to God. Community groups, lunch after today's service with other Christian road trips with your church pals, even parents who think by osmosis their kids are being discipled by them. No, don't be deceived. Just doesn't happen. Doing Jesus-looking things with Jesus-loving people does not mean disciples are being made. How then can we turn from that? First of all, ask Jesus for forgiveness. That's the first place to start, okay? How then do I bait and then make a disciple? First, pray and watch. See who God might bring along your path or whose path you may cross again and again. Just pray. God, Who is someone you would want me to invest in? To care for? To speak God's word into their life? And just help one another along in talking to you? Pray and watch. That's where we start. Number two, like Jesus, you initiate and on their territory. That's what he does here, right? He goes to Peter. He goes to Andrew. He goes to James. He goes to John. Their territory, or at least common territory. Thirdly, primarily use the indestructible bait of the good news, the gospel. When you're thanked or praised in a relationship, man, thank you for meeting with me. You know what? We all struggle. We all need one another. We're all sinful people who need Jesus. It's good news that he meets with us also. When corrected, humbled, or criticized, admit sin where possible, and frequently acknowledge that the only good in me is Jesus. Jesus. When the other person is discouraged or despondent, remind them that Jesus works out all things for good. He is risen. To encourage them the good news. And when asked about yourself, share again that the work that's being done in your life and the good things about your life are because of Jesus. Last thing here. Here's some further ideas for making disciples. All right? Community groups. I don't think there's, there's another, another place in this church, and I'm just going to say it because I love our community groups, on this island, that's brash, for discipling one another. Taking time along the way with kids and children's ministry at Georgetown Primary, you just say a quick prayer for them, or half a verse, it doesn't even be a whole verse, just a little bit of God's word. Just kneeling down, taking time. Starting a WhatsApp group that only shares scripture verses. Some of you don't know what WhatsApp is. Some of you have like a phone that still has hinges and things like that. That's okay. Nothing wrong with that. But you're not going to know what that is. It's okay. If you have WhatsApp, start a WhatsApp group that only shares scripture verses. Like that's kind of your thing. We're just going to share God's word over this. Make CDs of scripture saturated music for an overly busy professional or that crazy out-of-touch parent who doesn't even know what music sounds like anymore, <laughs> unless it's Barney or something of that nature, for them to listen to in the car. Write out and pass on a note of encouragement. If you have time, take time to be formal, regular, and intentional. Don't knock formal and intentional. You know, books like Read, Mark, Learn. Bible reading notes for those beginning the Christian life. We're going through the book of Mark. This would be perfect. Go through this with somebody. Or we have a, a simple online study for every book of the Bible Online, through InterVarsity Press, online studies. Look under recommended resources. Serve with somebody in the body. Intentionally within the church or in the community. Or surprise somebody with service. Um, got a chance to begin a discipleship group with three other men in the church who are new Christians. It's, it, I can't wait to do it. I'm very excited about it. We began last Wednesday by helping a lady who works at Simboco set up those Simboco flags. All right over here for breakfast this little... Flags all inside of her we just uh, you know we helped why not? What a way to bond together She was shocked <laughs> and a little bit scared probably that's okay though I think she parents taking one week to gather at, at the dinner table all your child's children's questions about God and then taking the next week to look at verses that address those questions and just reading them with your children the next week at dinner or teaching your children to pray by having to re- repeat after you what you pray. In simple language. That will sharpen your prayer life too, by the way. Praying with others before church, for the church leaders, for needs of the body. These sorts of things. It's how you disciple one another. So if this morning you sense from Jesus the authoritative call to follow him, I'm going to plead to you to step out in faith and follow without the fine print. And If you follow Jesus and experience the tenderness of his grace and the power of his truth, identify a fish and go fishing. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Jesus, the Word made flesh. Thank you that just as Jesus called his first disciples a couple thousand years ago, so he also calls us today. Not with fanfare or riding it in the sky or even on breakfast food, as we saw earlier, Lord, but, but just showing us himself through his Word, showing us both his grace and And his truth. That he alone can bring both of these things to our lives. Everyone in this world is looking for some sort of balance. And they don't even know what they mean by that. But Jesus, you alone bring that. Both an irresistible mercy, grace, tenderness. But also a truth that can break hard hearts and self-sufficient lives. Jesus, I pray for those this morning who have not stepped out in faith to follow you that they would. Even now, Lord, say, Jesus, I want to follow you. Father, for those of us who've been following Jesus, we admit, I'm not sure I've ever made a disciple. And I know I'm not making one now. Help us step out. Help us pray. Help us watch. Help us initiate. Look around us. Then cast the line and bring in a fish. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.